Looking for a way to level up your coaching and win more? Get better fast with GMS Plus. GMS Plus is your on-demand source for the best, most proven volleyball courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Learn from some of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmsted, Keegan Cook, John Spraw, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson. I've learned a great deal from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. Whether you're trying to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. And we have a Coach Your Brains Out code for listeners. To get 20% off an annual subscription, go to goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter the code CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Okay, so moving into part two, which was compete. As uh, chapter nine, you talk about the 10-80-10 rule, which I think was from business, where 10% of people on teams will do everything right, 80% are kind of average, we'll, we'll do just enough, and 10% are more disruptive. And, uh, you know, it seems like it's appealing and also common, I know I've done it a lot, where you focus on the main problem or what, you know, that's what's the the sore thumb as you see the people who are maybe messing it up. But you you seem to go about it the other way where you're saying we should we should focus, uh, I think you said on the top 10%. So yeah, I guess what's what's your recommendation with that breakdown? So this idea, right, is that in any group of people, there's a percentage who do everything. They show up early, they stay late, they they go above and beyond, they get done what needs to get done. And then there's a percentage um, who do the opposite, right? They they just they they don't buy into the standards. They they show up late. They don't put out their best effort. But most people are in the middle, mm-hmm. right? And they have good days and they have bad days. And certainly as a coach, right? It's like it's so easy to just get all your energy sucked away by those bottom ten percenters, right? especially when one of them is your most talented player, which happens sometimes, right? Because that player has been able to coast his or her whole life. And, and now all of a sudden they're at a level where they can't coast anymore, but they don't, they've never developed the behaviors, you know, to really train correctly. So it's not saying that you abandon them, Mm -hmm. but you can't spend all your energy on them. And what you're better off doing, um, in this sort of idea, which I really resonate with, is who are the people in that middle 80% who are there some days and not others who might have the biggest impact on your season, right? Mm -hmm. And every team that I have ever worked with, I always ask them that. And right off the bat, they will one, two, three names. Like if this person became a top 10 percenter, if we went from top 10 to top 20 or top 30, mm-hmm. right? Would it, you know, would it help us be successful? Would it help us win? Would we be better? I've never had a team not understand that. Mm-hmm. And so then when we say is, okay, we've got these three kids and oh, look, we have three captains. You're each assigned one of them. Mm-hmm. Your responsibility is to turn them in, you know, to a top 10% or today or this week. And then we'll reconvene and see how that went. And I, you know, I tell the story in the book how one of my teams, right, they identified um this young woman and, you know, and 
they they got her into the fold and they understood it and she became uh, an all-american right division one all-american and it was like but she was in and out some good days some bad days and there was this intentional effort to engage her every day and then it's like okay john you have this guy he's your responsibility at the end of the week if i'm the coach and, and i say john you know, your job was to go get Joey every day this week. Joey was horrible in practice this week. What's going on? Right. And if you say, well, I did this and this, and he is just not there, coach. I tried everything. Okay. Fair enough. At least we tried. Right. Um, should someone else take him? Maybe someone else has a better shot at it versus if we, if we just say, Hey, these three players are going to make us better. All right, cool. And then we're done. Well, who's accountable for that now? Yeah. Right. So we add some accountability to it. And, you know, if you if all of a sudden 30 percent of your roster is that top doing everything, hmm. it becomes less comfortable to be in the middle. Hmm. It becomes way less comfortable to kind of, you know, show up not focused or, you know, be lazy in practice or lazy in the classroom or whatever it is, because you stand out. Right. And and so now it's sort of this peer pressure of this isn't for everyone. And if you can't do it, maybe it's not a good fit for you. And, it, and it's hard work, but that's more powerful than the coach cracking down on a player. Right. When they feel accountable to their teammates and they're not getting it done and everyone else is and they're slipping down the pecking order. Unless there's something else going on, usually they get on board. And then, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I love how you empower the peer feedback, the peer to peer. Yeah, I agree. It's so much more impactful, but then what about as this 80% is sliding up, does the 10% get further away or what do you do with that bottom 10%? Like how do you make sure that they don't get lost in the weeds? I mean, some do, some don't, you know, you're still paying attention to them, but mm -hmm. you're saying, you know, Hey, you're, you know, you bring, you bring this. Okay. So let's take the player who's bottom 10% and not playing, you're not playing, you want to, but I've never seen you stay after practice. I've never seen you do an extra weight room session. Do you meet with the sports psychologist that we provide for you? No. Well, why, why do you think things are going to change? Right. And then by the same token, now, if it's one of your most talented people, like, how do you attach that to their future goals or ambitions? Like, hey, do you want to make a national team? You want to go to Olympics? You want to turn pro? Like, what makes you think that your behaviors today are, are, are getting you to that spot, right? Like, do you notice this? Do you see this? Is this the type of person you want to be? Let's just do it for one day and see how it feels, hmm. right? Um, and this happens on every level from youth to the pros, Right. That and that's that 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 dance of the coach. How do I engage someone who doesn't want to be engaged or has never had to engage every single day in their lives because of their ability? Yeah, no, that's great. Um that's the okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna move. I had one more yeah. left, but I'm gonna uh yeah. oh I no, that's what I I was thinking. I wanted to to ask it at the uh the beginning um with this with this percent thing. Like, how, how do you see it? Is it, like, are you saying the top 10%? Is it a combination of talent? Is it these um, qualities like hard work, like being a great teammate? Is it a combination of all that? Could you be the least talented player and still be in the top 10%? Like, how do you, 
how do you come up with that concoction of uh, yeah and, and and recognizing right like 10% is not an exact number right, right. some groups right. that number's really really high and some groups it's less um so no you don't have to be one of the most talented and in all the groups that I work with we always have someone in the leadership group who might not play as much mm-hmm. because if someone who doesn't play very much or play at all you know exhibits all of the behaviors right you know the hard work the positivity the the joy the grit whatever it is and they don't play it's a pretty good example for other people hmm. like you know that person never gets a minute and yet they can do this and you can't be bothered mm-hmm. right so so i i think you know it, it what that that 1080 10 for me is really about behaviors what are the agreed upon behaviors in our group that we've agreed to hold each other accountable for and that we agree if we exhibit these things we will perform our very best mm-hmm. right and if we get that right if we do that um you know so any and, and because the thing is i control that mm-hmm. right that has nothing to do with you know how high I jump, yeah. or you know my my technical level, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Every one of these behaviors I own, yeah. and so there's no excuse to not do them, yeah. right? And and that's and that's so I think that's where it's really really powerful, right? Yeah, that's that's really important clarification to make sure, like that it's behavior based. I think that's that's huge. Um, yeah. Okay, so moving on to uh, the you had another story is about Colby College and the lacrosse team and. Again, that this was what makes the book so great is all these stories that I think any high school team, college team can relate to a lot of these like, oh, we've we've been in a scenario similar to that. How did we respond? Uh, but yeah, could you take us through that story of uh, this uh, this lacrosse team and their conference tournament? Yeah, for sure. Um, and and so Colby College. So I got into the team development thing um, through Jerry. Right. And Jerry's been at this for a couple of decades and so a lot of athletes that he worked with and won national championships with and stuff um, are now coaching, mm. right? And so then they come back to Jerry and he's like, yeah, I'm kind of out of it now, but, you know, John, you know, John will take your team or whatever, you know, because they remember their time as an athlete. Like this was, you know, and, and you know, you get into coaching and you, you you spend a decade probably looking for the magic practice and then you realize it's not there. And then you realize it's the relationships and it's the culture and it's all those things that feed into it. And so these, these coaches, you know, come and like, yeah, you know what, Jerry and way of champions methodology, like that was a big part of it. So anyway, Colby was the first team I started working with. Um, The coach Karen there had been uh, a player at Maryland when Jerry worked with the team, won national championships there. Um, And, so she wanted to sort of tweak the the culture of Colby lacrosse, women's lacrosse. And um, and yeah, that first year, you know, we really sort of set some really good standards. And, and, and this wasn't like a team that was going from bad to great. Like they were already very good, but how can we, you know, how can we do a little bit more? Hadn't won a conference championship in a decade or so. Um, and so we set these values and it was interesting because we started the season 0 and 2 or 0 and 3, right? We because we always go on the road and play really, really tough teams. But we knew we were on the right track. We were competing against the best in the country. We were just kind of finding our feet. 
And, and so we kept the focus and, and we, then we reeled off like 15 wins in a row, including we, we won the NESCAC conference for the first time in a decade or so, uh, which was amazing. Um, but we had to go on the road for that conference tournament and, um, beat Middlebury on their own field. And they're sort of the preeminent division three women's college lacrosse program, um, and so we were like the number two seed going into the NCAA tournament. So we were supposed to host and basically be home until the final four. Well, lo and behold, um, you know, there was like, you know, Colby and is in Waterville, Maine. There's, it's not a big area. Well, all the hotels were full, you know? So all of a sudden we were stuck, right. And we couldn't host anymore. So we got sent back on the road to Middlebury. Right. And, and it was just like, oh my goodness, you know, now we have to go play against one of the best teams in the country again on the road again. What did we do? And so we really, you know, put the focus on every team can start letting other people write their story, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's your story and come up with all the reasons why you shouldn't be successful. And, um, I, I felt in that moment, we had to stop that. Like we had to write our own story uh, in, in that moment to not make excuses so we could throw the game away and just, you know, well, you know, the people at the school, the NCAA, this, that, everything. It was just like, blah, right. And so, um, and so anyway, we, you know, we went and played an unbelievable game against Middlebury and lost by a goal. Right. And it was probably a year that we were really in a great spot to potentially win a national championship. And, uh, you know, it was funny, like this year, actually, as well, like we we same we played them three times and lost all three. Mm. <laughs> but but, you know, we lost to them in the Elite Eight in the NCAA tournament this year, I think by two goals or three goals. And then they went and won their final four games and the final by 10, 12 goals like. We were the only close game they played, yeah. you know, and it was hard is like, here we are, we made the elite eight, but we just couldn't get over the Middlebury hump in a year where they were an incredible team. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, hearing that story, it just like feels so unfair. I could see how any team you're going to first react and, it, you know, we, we have these natural emotions and it's easy to fall into this victim mindset. This is unfair. Um, it's not right. And I think lots of teams could hold on to that. But my guess is the work you guys had done, you know, you're working with them all year. And you, you in the book, you talk about respond versus react. I guess what are the things, not only just in that moment, but that you guys had done throughout the year to allow them to go out and not focus on the unfairness, but to go compete and to go, you know, be themselves. And and that idea, right? That we don't react, we respond is a really important thing, right? Like we respond, which means our training and our character chooses our course of action. Then there's this uh, leadership guy, Tim Kite. He has this formula. He calls it E plus R equals O. Event plus response equals outcome. And you know your response to an event has a far greater effect on the outcome than usually the event itself. And yet, if it's if we react to the bad call, whatever, like what we talked about was. Well, we could sit here and make all these excuses and complain about, you know, all the people that screwed us over. What is that gonna what does that get us? Mm -hmm. It's not getting us any more prepared to face the reality in front of us, which is we have to go play Middlebury again, right? Or yeah. whatever. And so 
And so that's one of the things we talk about a lot with our teams is we have to go from reacting to responding Mm -hmm. as an individual and as, you know, as a collective. Um, And, and I mean, you see that in, you know, there's bad calls in your sport all the time. Right. And it's like, you're going to, you're going to lose the next three points because of that bad call, or are you just going to, okay, move past it and move on, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. It's a great quick mantra to, to remind all of us of so much easier to react. Responding takes thoughtfulness and, and care and, and leads to better outcomes. You're, you mentioned your, your job and um, getting to work with teams and oversee teams and uh, basically do like coach development, program development. It seems like to me, the best job in the world. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds so awesome. But hearing you talk about it just made me think like, oh, I'd love to do that if I was doing it. Um, but no, no, I guess I was wondering, do you, as you observe it, and it sounded like you said the things that coaches and programs need to do better first is more on the culture side, the leadership side. I mean, are you ever seeing like practice design where you're like, oh, they're, they're way far off? Or are, they, are those all connected? Like, I guess, where do you see as you're coming into programs? Like what, what most often are you emphasizing or, or, uh, you know, working on with them? Well, I, you know, I don't, you know, per the NCAA, right? When you're an outside consultant, you can never, you can't do anything technically or tactically. Um, And to be honest, most of the sports that I work with, I don't know anything about them anyway. So there's no way I could help you with volleyball or, you know, someone with lacrosse or field hockey or anything like that, you know, like, um, so, so that's not it. So, you know, I really work very closely with the coaches on sort of what, you know, what's going well and, and, and what needs, what needs work and then identifying leadership, um, values. And, you know, and I just do a lot of one-on-one calls with the coaches where they're, I mean, you know, this as a college coach, like when you, when, when something's not going well, like, who do you turn to? Yeah. Right. You don't like, you, you're you not going to call the people down the street who you compete against. Cause they're like, ah, sweet, you know, <laughs> twist the knife. Right. Um, you know, and some, some universities are wonderful. Right. And so, you know, like Jenny at North Carolina, she's like, you know, my office is next door to Anson Dorrance. He won 22 national championships. I could call Roy Williams at basketball, ask his advice, you know, it's like, but other universities are not like that. They're really siloed and, you know, you don't even get to talk to the football coach or the basketball coach or whatever. And so, you know, like, who do I talk to? And so what Jerry and I do and other people who do this is sort of like, I've been in the trenches. I've been a coach. I do all this work. I'm just sort of this mostly neutral third party mm-hmm. to bounce ideas off of. How do you see this situation? Right. And some coaches might just have me and some have a couple of me's and great. You know, and it's just how do you see this? And it helps them process the decision, whether it's a player personnel issue, whether it's a team culture issue, whether it's, you know, you know, a lot of them now go through this in recruiting. Right. Are you is this is this athlete going to fit the culture? Right. And and, you know, it doesn't matter how talented he is or she is. If they're going to ruin the culture, then we don't really want them. Yeah. You know, Um so, so yeah, so it's, it's cool. It's, I mean, it's, it's fun. It, it's, 
it, it's it's awesome to be three thousand miles away sometimes and and watch a win a championship. And it sucks to be three thousand miles away <laughs> and watch a win a championship. Like yeah. whenever I leave campus, I'm I'm sad. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm sad that I'm not going to see these kids for a while in person, even though I might see them via Zoom, even though I might do some one on ones. It's 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 I'm just like, oh, because I love to be in a college coach. I love the day to day of it. Yeah. And I'm just like, ah, oh, you know, yeah. to not see the day to day growth is kind of sad. Yeah. But to be a part of so many teams, I mean, teams are special that you get to be a part of so many. And I'm I'm picturing your example, you know, who do coaches go to when so many of us are siloed? It's like you just lose lots of sleep and toss and turn. And then oh, other yeah. coaches get to talk to Anson Dorrance or talk to you. It seems like that's just such a, even just from letting to get, allowing to get stuff off your chest and having someone listen. And I mean, that's just so impactful and helpful. So um, yeah, very much so very much. And again, a lot of times I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, mm-hmm. right? Like you got it. You knew this already. Yeah. Um. You know, it just, and sometimes I'm just reconfirming. Yeah. I see it the same way you know um so yeah it's 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 fun for sure i i really do enjoy it that's awesome um well i just want to do i'll go one more i know we're taking a lot of your time uh i have like 10 more questions here but let's see if we pick one more good one we'll have to do part part two someday exactly (laughs) yeah or everyone's got to read the book that's the the reality uh so chapter 12 this one stuck out to me a lot building the capacity to endure was the the mm-hmm. title, and you talk about the value of confidence and positive action. And over what I hear the most from lots of players, and kind of saying there's almost this crutch of I have to have confidence and positive thinking. So why is it worth valuing more confidence over confidence? Well, I I think you know when you think about this, right? And and parents tell a coach, oh, you need to give my kid confidence, or I need to give them confidence, or like confidence is earned. Right. How could you ever, how could you possibly feel confident about running a marathon unless you trained and developed the competence to do so? Right. Like if you got off the couch and said, I'm going to go run a marathon, I wouldn't feel confident. I'd be like, I'm not going to make it five miles because I haven't trained for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, you know, so, so a lot of people want confidence first and then think they develop competence, but no, it's the other way around. So you got to mm-hmm. put in the hours and, and you got to put in the work. Um, and then what you often see on display, um, you know, this uh, psychologist, Joan Oliver, said this to us. It was one of my favorite interviews we've done. He said, you know, you see Steph Curry draining threes and then they interview him after and they go, you looked really confident out there. And he's like, no, you looked really competent out there. <laughs> right. Um, and and so we confuse these things. And so, um, you know, it, it's all about getting the reps, mm-hmm. right, that you, you've got to get reps technically and tactically, but also psychosocial reps in in overcoming adversity, dealing with bad calls, all this sort of stuff so that you learn to respond. And so we want to build that in to practice as often as possible. Um, You you know, I I mean, I just like I thought about like I I, when I worked in the university, one of the basketball coaches, you know, at the end of practice when they'd be shooting free throws, you know, everyone's at a different basket shooting free throws. That's not really mimicking a one-on-one with 10 seconds left. Right. Right. You know, it, you know, but then he would like, he would blow his whistle and say, all right, John, if you make it practice over, if you miss it, we run right now, all of a sudden there's eyes on you, your heart rate goes up or whatever. Is that the game? No, but at least it's starting to get it. And so, 
you know, one of the big things I think is people, you know, like one of the worst things I see parents do when kids are nervous or scared is tell them, don't be scared. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Instead of recognizing that, okay, like this is a good thing. It means that you care. Mm -hmm. It means that this matters to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you weren't nervous, then I'd be right. Every time I get up, get up and give a speech, I'm nervous beforehand. Because I want it because I care that it goes well and that I impact people and whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. But now I when that nervousness comes, I'm like, this is great. Mm -hmm. I feel alive. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Welcome to being human. Right. And so and so, you know, when that athlete has that three foot putt to win a tournament or, you know, serving for game points or whatever it is, you should feel nervous. But what the best people have done is just built the capacity to be like, I've been here before. I have the ability to do this and it's it's good to go, right? Now, if you or I were standing over a three-foot putt to win the Masters, right? My hands would be shaken and whatever. Yeah. But the guy hitting that putt, he's been there before, right? right. He, he's, he's built that capacity to do it, right? right. And so I, I think that's, you know, just something that we have to instill in our teams what are the things that we need to start doing to build that capacity that in those difficult moments in that tie game um we can we can do the right things and what do we need to stop doing that we're doing now that's hurting that Mm -hmm. um you know so yeah yeah. no that's a great message and it's a good way to wrap it up i feel like a lot of the olympic athletes professional athletes college athletes athletes i've talked to they say they feel nervous they feel they have doubts they're, um, you know, unsure of, uh, the outcome, but because they've trained it. And, and I think also when they have, you know, the name of the book, they have a champion teammate supporting them. They have uh, a coach, they have a support staff, like they know they can go out and, and be their best. They can live their values. They can compete the way they want to compete, even when they don't feel confident. Um, so I think it all, it all ties together in, in that message. Yeah, no, for sure. And and again, I think more and more coaches are seeing this and recognizing the importance of, you know, psychosocial elements to every practice, not just a technical and tactical thing, but how are we developing togetherness and belonging and and this, you know, mental fortitude and hardiness and all these things, right? And and when you're weaving all those things in, your athletes are getting enough reps that now when the game rolls around, it's not like, wow, this is the first time I've been in this situation. Right. right. Cause you're competent. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's a great way for coaches to strive for competence and for players too, and not, not lean on just confidence. Okay. So, I mean, I had another, like I said, five questions on lead, but people can go read the book and, and pick up all the chapters we didn't touch on. And there's so much more, like you said, to, uh, to build with your team, to read as a team, to read a chapter before practice. There's so many opportunities to use these lessons and, and take them not just as a theory, but we're going to use this today in training. We're going to use this today in this situation. So uh, yeah. that's why the book's so powerful. So where where would you say, where's the best way people can get it? Well, I mean, the, the hardcover is only available on Amazon. Uh, we just released the paperback as well, um, which will then be an extended distribution. So that will be, if not yet, very soon on Barnes and Noble and Powell's and everywhere else. Um, there is no audio book yet. People always, coaches always ask, well, where's the audio book? Like, I don't, I don't have that yet, man. But this is really a work. Read. You don't need an audio book. It's an easy and, and it's really a workbook too, right? Yeah. You're like, you're supposed to write in it. 
Like right. this book, you have permission to write in. The first page, you're supposed to put the your name and the name of your team. Like yeah. start writing in this book. So so it's not really an audiobook, but we'll probably record it anyway. We'll see. Yeah. What about bulk orders? Do they still go yeah. through that or reach out bulk, to you? Bulk orders, you know, if you want more than 10 books, just you can just email me directly, just John J O H N at changingthegameproject.com. And we give you a nice discount on on those as well. And yeah, spend a lot of time filling those these days as as you know people's school sports seasons are kicking off. So it's been a really fun uh, couple of weeks here talking to coaches and just how to use this book and everything. So yeah, a lot of people are excited this fall. Me too. That's awesome. And then for the the podcast, I, I'd imagine most people who listen to ours are aware of yours. But if you were to maybe highlight a couple, like what would be a couple highlights from the Wave Champions podcast where people could go if they want to get an introduction to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we've had some amazing guests, Steve Kerr. Um, like I said, we just had this amazing one that was from our conference with Jenny Levy, um, you know, multiple time national champion coach. I mean, for those in the volleyball world, uh, we just had Hugh McCutcheon yeah. on, right? Uh, Olympic gold and silver medalist coach and, uh, you know, incredibly successful talking about culture and championship behaviors. A lot of things that we talked about today, that podcast was on. So yeah, there is, you know, it's not everyone is not everything is everyone's cup of tea. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, search for things that you're interested in and hope I tagged them well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you can't go wrong. I, I've loved listening and, uh, you cover a wide range of topics and uh, they're done really well. So it's a great, great resource for coaches. Yeah. And thanks, man. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for the time. Thanks for making this happen again. We're, we're really honored to have had you. And I, I hope people go enjoy the book and read it with their teams. Awesome. Well, John, this was super fun. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck uh, for you and your upcoming seasons and yeah, stuff as well. Around the corner. We got to start reading the book. Yeah. All right, man. <laughs>